Shigori Vaishnav Guru Paramaraki Jai, Krantaras Srimad Bhagavatiki Jai, Over Bhakta Vindaki Jai, Over Premanandi. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. We're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, first canto, chapter one. Srimad Bhagavatam is, of course, the great treatise that uh, serves as the hub around which the wheel of all the sacred texts of Eastern Revelation and School of Vedanta orbit around. And this is very much emphasized by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who held the book close to his heart and whose genesis, if you will, esoteric origins are found within its pages and not just anywhere within its pages, but in the very heart of the book where it reaches its zenith theologically and spiritually and esoterically. That is one side of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the other side, the inside, the outside, that is also referred to later on in the text, in its afterthought, in the 11th canto. So, we read and study Srimad Bhagavatam in the light of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's understanding of it. And that light is a bright one. Bhagavatam itself is was conceived and experienced and written for the sake of shedding light on the significance of all the revelation that came before, all the sounds, if you will, that uh, arose in the hearts of the rishis and manifested in the form of the sacred texts and so forth. What did they mean? What was the consistent message of all of this? So, Srimad Bhagavatam was meant to shed light on that and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was shedding light on Sumat Bhagavatam, we don't find previous to his appearance an understanding even of the purpose of Srimad Bhagavatam, what to speak of its uh, insights, purposes which I'm speaking about. It is the book that ties all of these sounds together, makes sense out of them. So, we shall offer our respects to Srimad Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya before speaking on the text of Srimad Bhagavatam. Sri Satchinandana Ki Jai. Reading tonight from text number eight. Tatatatandrasayushpan babatayad benishchitam pumsalmi kantatasrayas tannasam kshitam arasi Please therefore, being blessed with many years, explain to us in easily understandable way that which you have ascertained to be the absolute and ultimate good for the people in general. So the context in which this verse appears is that we're in the first chapter of the Bhagavatam. It's entitled Questions by the Sages. There are six questions in this chapter, and the book unfolds on the basis of this inquiry, this six-fold inquiry, with answers in the second, third chapter, and the very that theme is carried out pretty much throughout the balance of the book, a book that consists of questions and answers, and the answers involve often stories, 
of the past by which the answer seeks to shed greater light on the answer and then within the context of those stories there are other questions and answers and so you have to follow the thread and then come back to where it started and so forth. 18,000 verses the book is constituted of and here, as I say, the context of this verse is that in the first chapter it's entitled Questions of the Sage of the Sages. Questions are followed or prefaced, I should say, and this is actually the first of them, are prefaced by a glorification on the part of the sages of one of the principal speakers of the Bhagavatam, in this case, Sutta Goswami. And before that glorification of Sutta and a brief description of the setting, the place in the forest of Naimi Sharanya, the book is further prefaced by three introductory uh, verses that constitute a verse in which the author offers his respect to the deity of the book, Satyam Param, and gives us a conceptual orientation to life and to what the book speaks about. And the second verse names the book and describes its essential teaching in a nutshell, which is about how to approach the Satyam Param. Satyam Param means the supreme truth. And that, of course, is Bhakti. So the first verse we have a conceptual orientation. We call it Sambandagyan, knowledge of how things relate to one another. Second verse emphasizes the action or the means that arises naturally out of that conceptual orientation and results in a particular fruit, which is what the third verse emphasizes, the goal, the ideal itself, the prayojan. Very important verses, those three introductory verses, and um, we've discussed them at length in other classes, so this is just to give you some idea where we are tonight. We are in the midst of the Naimi Sharanya forest. Naimi Vishaya Shonakadaya. Story begins like this Naimisha Animisha Chetre. The forest of Naimisharanya. It means, Amisha means to not blink. There's a little bit about time here in this beginning. We find here mention of time also. What is it? Tatta Tattandrasa Ayushman. Ayushman. Please, therefore, Sutta, who has been blessed with many years. Long time is the implication. His life has been blessed to be very long. He's in a place, Naimisharanya, where there is said to be no blinking. That's a short period of time, blinking. We don't even think of it. It's the name for Vishnu, who doesn't blink. It means that's God. God, Vishnu means God. It means all-pervasive. Many names to describe him in the Hindu canon, uh, scriptural canon, and uh, blinkless, <laughs> if you will, is one of them. He doesn't blink. So it's a sacred place that they've they've gathered, blessed by the deity Vishnu, who doesn't blink. And doesn't blink means what? That he doesn't miss anything. The eyes of God are everywhere. Om Tad Vishnu Param Padam Sada Pashanti Surayo. 
His eyes are everywhere. He doesn't miss a trick. No secrets. We have many secrets, all of us, or at least one. But everything is known to him. So, when we understand this, when we understand the universality of our deity, that's where our moral lapses and our spiritual shortcomings end. In the presence of God, then, we will conduct ourselves in one way. In his absence, apparent absence, we will conduct ourselves in another way. But he's everywhere. He's not absent. He doesn't blink. There's nothing that he misses. So this place, Taimisharanya, this forest, is named after Vishnu. And the implication also is that the sages gathered there, they weren't blinking either. They were paying very close attention. They had gathered for Sahasrasatam, a uh, thousand-year sacrifice. So a long period of time. Speaking about a small period of time. No blinking. Blinking is a small period of time. They had gathered for a long period of time. Sahasra, Satama, Sata. And for what? What had they gathered for? The text tells us very nicely. It says that hmm, they gathered Sahasra, Samama, Sata, Satram, Sargaya, Lokaya. They gathered for something that takes a long time. It was a thousand year sacrifice. And swarga, for swarga. Swarga means material elevation. It means heaven. And heaven in the Hindu text means a realm of heavenly enjoyment in which you cannot stay. The land of enjoyment means land of taking. And as much as we take, then we have to repay. So... To go there is, takes a long time. They were gathered for the pursuit, it means, of material progress. That is a long, long journey that has no end. It's an oxymoron. There is no progress <laughs> if we pursue material life only. It's like going up the down escalator. There is a carrot. There is an appetizer being offered to us. But the full meal... It never comes. This is a long, long road. It's called anadi. Anadi karma. Without a beginning. And the, the more you move, the more you... It's like quicksand. The more you go down. The more you take, the more you owe. We go into negative numbers. So they were gathered for this. In a systematic way, they wanted to pursue material progress. So they were pious. They were good people. They performed different types of sacrifices, acknowledging the the gods and the goddesses or those aspects of nature that we are dependent upon in order to function. In other words, for our seeing in the microcosm of our sense of bodily material self, we're dependent upon the macrocosm and uh, the aspect of it for example, uh, known as the sun. We're very dependent upon light for seeing. So they were making all these connections and with gratitude, prayerfully acknowledging the powers, if you will, that, that be very different than modern life, which is to ignore them and to try to change the nature of nature. So still, 
as good as that may sound, what they were doing, from the Bhagwat's point of view, they were wasting their time. The Bhagwat is not about religious life. It's about spiritual life. Religious life means to color our human life in consideration of God, to make ourselves and our small, petty, material life, however big we want to make it, whether we become a Gandhi or a Kennedy or a whatever, it's all a small thing, really. Someone was telling me today, Dristapuru, that he had seen a documentary, a scientific documentary, science documentary about space. And he explained, they explained how they used to think that there was the Milky Way, and that was pretty big. And then they realized that there were, what, many Milky Ways, billions, billions of Milky Ways, and billions of whatever, galaxies, and so forth. And anyway, with regard to the stars in the sky, they have concluded that there are more stars in the sky there are than there are grains of sand on every beach and every desert <laughs> on the planet. It's a big place out there. And it's all small. We'll just speak of our life and our planet and the big things that we are doing or we think we might like to do. Big thing means to find yourself and to find that you are, you are a dedicating unit, a unit of serving capacity, not a taker. But by acquiring, you don't get bigger. But by giving, you grow, you expand. So Bhagavatam wants to take us within. It doesn't want merely to have a connection with the Godhead, if you will, with, with the power of nature and so forth, from the point of view of facilitating our small life, which constitutes birth, growth, maturation, giving off of byproducts, dwindling and dying. That's the whole show. And it's no more glorious than that of an insect. It's the same thing. We can philosophize about it, think about it, try to make it bigger than what it is. But that which fits between birth and death is a small affair. And the point is, as pessimistic as that may sound, we don't stop there. The Bhagavatam says, hmm? but you can transcend birth and death. There's a big life in being small. In acknowledging your smallness, life becomes big for you because you come in touch with the one that's actually big. And the Godhead is friendly. That's big because we feel the environment is unfriendly when we try to become big. There seems to be some resistance. There is. (laughs) And we're not big. That's one of the reasons why. So, as they say in Zen, something like that. Small is big, right? So, <laughs> so this is where the Bhagavatam wants to take us beyond heaven, if you will, to ourself. And ourself in relation to the Godhead in an intimate sense. An intimate connection with the Godhead. So, they were gathered for a thousand years. It means, Svargaloka, and they wanted to go to Svarga, it means... This is a long process and it's futile from the Bhagavatam's point of view. In the preface, it said it earlier, Dharma Projita Kaita Vutra Paramonin Matsaranam Satam Dharma Projita Kaita Vutra It says, about being pious, materially good and religious, it says, this is a big thing in one sense compared to just being grossly materialistic and criminal and so forth. It said it's a small thing. It's not the best use of your time, your human life. So much more is available to you. 
Dharma Prodita Kaito Bhotra. This is, you're cheating yourself by this pursuit. It wants to cut to the chase. It says, we don't have much time. That's what it's telling us. We don't have much, but the blink of an eye. And in a blink of an eye, you can perfect yourself by bhakti, which is the path articulated in Bhagavatam. While a material path takes a long time, a thousand years they were gathered to try to be successful. This path takes a second only. If you apply yourself properly, such potential, in other words, is there. So you can't do it immediately then in one life, two life, three life, something like that. How many have you had? Since the time without beginning, Jalaja, Navalakshani, Stavra, Lakshadimshati, we've been circling around, this is the idea, through many species of life for thousands of years. Sometimes it's said, you cannot become enlightened in one life. And I say, in one life, you will become enlightened. Why not this one? In one of them it will happen. So we should think, why not this one? This is what kind of urgency the Bhagavatam tries to arouse in us at the very onset. It's setting the place where there's no no blinking. Vishnu is fully present. The topic is all about him. Here the sages, the course of the sages' pursuit is changed. Then they were gathered for one thing. But what happened? Sutta Gosami entered. Here it's mentioned in our verse tonight that Oh, oh, you who are blessed with a long life. What is the context then? These sages were gathered and there was a fellow seated on the seat of esteem who was teaching all the different sacred texts except for this text, the Bhagavatam. And Balaram uh, had come there, the avatar, uh, Krishna's other self, if you will, and he could understand, this man is seated on a seat of esteem, but he has no regard for the Bhagavat, what it's about. He's not suited to sit there. So he removed him and put Sutta, his son, there, who had studied from Vyas, and as the sages said here in their preface, in verses Previous to tonight's, oh, he was very qualified. He studied very well. He was, he was shrotriyam, and he was brahmanishtam. He was without vice. He was submissive to his own gurus. A very nice section, to all about why someone should be revered. There's, of course, a, a resistance to that. Why Swami sitting on that seat? It's about four inches taller than. Everybody else will see it. It's just to see you better. But uh, there's a resistance in our modern society, in Western society, to the idea of authority. And hierarchy, of course, is not a very popular idea in postmodern thinking. But um, the idea of spiritual authority should be understood. Even anarchism, for example, accepts authority, a form of authority. We call it natural authority. Natural authority, in other words, people have certain qualities and abilities. They excel naturally in certain fields, and therefore they are authorities. We'd be foolish to think that they weren't. Artificial authority, where someone is placed as an authority not based on natural qualities and so forth, 
the anarchists reject it, but they cannot reject natural authority. And when we speak about spiritual authority, that's what we're talking about, natural authority. When Sutta came, walked in, others stood up. When Sukadev walked in, another speaker, the principal speaker of the Bhagavatam, who Sutta heard from, everyone stood up. They could understand. They showed regard for the expertise that he had. And, of course, uh, he shared that with them readily. So the sages have described the qualities of Sutta. They described that, that, oh, he was submissive to his teachers. Therefore, he is qualified to teach this subject. What is the subject? The subject is service. It's how to serve. So who will teach how to serve? One who is the best servant. <laughs> we haven't got to be afraid of a servant, right? We're afraid of the enjoyer, but not the servant. So the teacher in our lineage is uh, to be conceived like this. Student, we're all students forever. He or she learned well how to serve, and he or she can teach that. They spoke all these things about him. They said, here, as the last verse, just previous to this, concludes what? Because you were like that, they shared their secrets with you. This is what we want to do. We want to get close so that the guru will share his or her heart with us. That means to become interested in that which the guru is interested in. That's what, what Krishna is interested in. I mean, who's interested in Krishna? Krishna himself says it. What does he say in, in Bhagavat, in Kurukshetra, to the gopis? He said, oh, so many people approach me. What is that verse? Mai bhakti ributanam. Amrita-svaya-kalpate. bhakti ributanam amrita Amrita means immortality. He said, oh, so many people approach me for immortality. What a bore. Or people approach me for material things. Oh, that will really put me to sleep. Some people approach me with devotion, like this. They want to serve me. They see themselves, and they see me. I'm the object of worship, and then there's the worshiper. They don't want to get that close to me. They want to worship me like this. There's you and there's me. But who's interested in me? What I'm like, what I'm about, what makes me tick? Very few people. But I see that in you, gopis, milkmaidens. And I'm captured by that. That I'm purchased by. You're interested in me. Imagine, everybody wants something from God, but who cares what God is about? That doesn't mean, doesn't mean what he's about in relation to this world, because what is this world, anyway? It comes and goes, comes and goes. This is not the main stage. This is a place where for, for reform, obviously, we, we, we need reformation, we can understand that. Just if we're honest about ourselves. Morality is held high because, well, <laughs> we're just coming out of animality. That's what human life is. Through a evolution, if you will, of transmigration through different species, we come to human life, it's like, you're on probation now. Let's see how you do. You've got certain freedoms. You can think. You can do things voluntarily. You're not overly oppressed by the force of nature, such that you just have to follow the dictates of nature. We're coming out from underneath that. The Bhagavatam begins with a big Om. 
Om. Om means yes, yes. So you think, well, what's the question? Right? If Om is the sound of the Godhead and it's saying yes, what's the question? The question that is arising in human life, there's a question that arises in human consciousness. There's a kind of a, a doubt. Am I part of nature or am I, can I rise above nature? Is there more to life than what meets the eye? We sense there is. There seems to be more. And the sound from the other side is, yes, there's more, yes. It's answering that. A big affirmation. This is a question that characterizes human life. It doesn't characterize other species of life. Their consciousness is more overwhelmed by nature. In human life, we begin to think that we exist. It's an extraordinary time to be alive, human time. And we think that we exist for a purpose that's more than what we find in the less complex forms of life. More than just eat, sleep, and eat, drink, and be merry, and you know, protect yourself. And so there must be more. We sense that. That's why we try to fly in the sky, try to dive to the bottom of the ocean. As I said before, birds don't try to drive to the bottom of the ocean, and fish don't try to fly. But we do. Why? Because we are sensing ourselves, what we are, more in human life than other species of life. That self is not limited by nature. But at the same time, we do find ourselves somewhat constrained by nature. We're kind of on probation. How we conduct ourselves in relation to nature will determine what, how well we've used our life, whether we get released, so to speak, from its uh, cruel hand, if you will. As Darwin said, one, Bhagavatam says, one living being is food for another. Darwin put it like that. Survival of the fittest. One living being is food for another. That's a fact. But that's not the whole story the Bhagavatam says. Yeah, that's true. But there's more to it than that. And so, yes, there's more. You can have it. And then so many verses, how to do that. How to change the way you're approaching life. The animals will approach life in a certain way. Are we to approach in the same way? We're said to be different because we're, we're rational. Is it rational then to use your reasoning just to find better ways to gratify our senses, to eat, sleep, mate, and defend? Does that really make us any different then than other less complex forms of life? No, it makes us the biggest and most dangerous beast on earth. We should use reason for something else to distance ourselves from our animality and use our humanity to enter into our spirituality. This is the idea in Bhagavatam. It's a big affirmation. Yes, it's possible. And how deep you can go there. How deeply you can go. And now, it's now. They had gathered for a thousand year sacrifice. Maybe they'd be successful, maybe they wouldn't. Later on in the Bhagavatam, we find the sages say, all we got was a, our face blackened by smoke from that sacrifice. <laughs> we tried to make material progress and this is what happened. All we got, this is they say, we only got our face blackened by smoke. Now we see we have a prospect and it's an immediate prospect. That's the point. This is not about religious life, a systematic way to be better materially and get more material 
goods and so forth and, you know, oh God, give us our daily bread. It's not about that. And that will take a long time. And it will never, you'll never be satisfied. No matter how much you get, you'll never be satisfied. This is something different. And it's now. You can experience it now. We're talking about experiential spiritual life, not theoretical, uh, have faith and hope so and kind of thing. But now, you can experience it now. And it gives the means here in a text. So this is like exciting. The sages are excited. Sutta has been placed on the seat. He's been blessed with a long life by Balaram, yes. But what does it mean? The previous fellow had a blessing for a long life. But Balaram interfered with that, right? Romaharsan was slain for misrepresenting the essence of the teachings in the name of being the teacher. He was slain. He had a blessing for a long life. That means however long your life is materially, you will be slain. However long. But the long life of Sutta that's mentioned here is another thing. Because why? He will speak the Bhagavatam. And what does the Bhagavatam say? Ayurharati vaipumsam ujjanastam jayanaso Later on it addresses this in beautiful poetry. It says, Ayurharati. Ayur means life. Ayurharati. Harati means to take away. Ayurharati vaipumsam. Pumsam for all beings, human beings. Life is being taken away. Ujjan astan chayanaso, with the rising and the setting of the sun, our lives are being taken, as we know them, are being taken away. I mean, nature is such a nice verse. It's so beautiful and poetic, but it's very profound. I mean, we watch the sun rise, we watch it set, or we don't. That's even worse. We don't even know that it's rising and setting. Too absorbed in the, in the industrial society and so distanced even from nature. Or to speak of our own nature that is spiritual. But if we slow down and watch the rising and setting of the sun, thoughtfully we should think, this is killing me. It's taking away ayurharati. Life as I know it is being taken away. For sure. It's only, what do they say? Don't let it bring you down. It's only castles burning. <laughs> Find someone who's turning, then you will come around. <laughs> so here, come around. It's only castles burning. That's the whole, I don't know what he meant, but that's what it meant to me. Old song. So turn, turn in this direction. The Bhagavatam says, what? While the rising and the setting of the sun is killing everyone, it says, Tatsyartya except for one, Uttamasloka Who's talking about these things? Time, then, is bringing that person closer to eternity. Such is the nature of the topic. So here we have a book that talks about stopping time. That's powerful. You know, that's, what's this old book? You know, how is this value? The subject is very relevant, very significant. So those who are absorbed in this, they don't die. What does it mean? They don't die. It means they become free from karma. They become blessed with a long life. They become blessed with eternal life. They transcend, as I said, that cycle of birth and death, that small life in which we try to be big, 
but nature keeps telling us, you're not big, you're not big, you're insignificant, you're small, your life is being taken away, the rising and the setting of the sun. I mean, this is not book knowledge here. I mean, the book's pointing something out that nature is already saying to us, but we don't listen. If we were very thoughtful, we watched the sun rising and setting, and this is what happened, you see. This is how this book came about. Some people sat and watched the rising and setting of the sun, and they thought, huh, so that's what's going on. And here I am, trying to build a life by material acquisition, and the whole world is loudly telling me, it's a folly, you, you will not be successful in that. They listened to that. They were that tuned to nature. They approached nature in a different way than we do in the modern world with science and technology to conquer nature, change the nature of nature, to be the God and patent the seeds, Om Monsanto, you know, Namaha, you know, something, you know. It's, uh, uh, these are the, go- the gods of, uh, of the modern agriculture and so forth. These rishis had a different approach. They approached nature with the idea just from looking at the whole thing, this is bigger than me. I'm small. It's bigger. And so they were with regard, and they recognized I'm dependent upon sun for seeing light, heat, and so on and so forth. So they had regard for everything. And it's just said, you know, if you love someone, they tell you their secrets. That's a fact. So they loved nature, if you will. They had gratitude for everything that they did have and for the message ultimately from nature, that you don't have anything. Nothing's yours to keep. But there's you who can think about that, the experiencer, find yourself, go within. This is the idea. So here, Sut is blessed with a long life. This is what it means. He will speak Srimad Bhagavatam. Those who listen will live forever with him. This is not a topic that... We begin and end at a certain point. This is the, about the nectar of immortality. That's what it says. It is the character of consciousness in immortality. That is the name. Chaitanya Charitam. That's what this book is about. The immortal character of consciousness. What an interesting topic. Consciousness. Again, some old book. Who cares? With a bunch of stories and four-headed people and stuff. Who can believe all this stuff? What's it really about? It's about consciousness. How, How important is that? How relevant is that? How interesting is that? What is that? Well, we think it's us, consciousness. Science is trying to figure out what is consciousness. I saw an interview of John Searle, who's at Berkeley, a very famous... Uh, philosopher in, in the, in the uh, science of mind, one of the luminaries in the field of pursuing an understanding of consciousness. He was being interviewed by a neuroscientist and he said that if we could just get rid of all this religious kind of baggage for all these years that we've been oppressed by, then it would be easier for us to think about consciousness you know, in terms of its being material. And I'm convinced that within a thousand years of science, we will have a fully explained consciousness. And it struck me because I thought, all the baggage that we've been oppressed by from religious and spiritual traditions, 
What is that baggage? Without modern science, to tell it otherwise, consciousness thinks and feels that it's more than matter, as I've said before. It causes the answer, Om. In other words, what are these religious traditions? From our point of view, what they are is consciousness in human life feeling itself to be bigger than what it is, and so looking for the bigger story that explains what I am, that I sense. So what I'm saying is consciousness unto itself goes naturally in that direction. Where's the burden? Meanwhile, modern science wants to come in and tell us, I know you think you're consciousness and there's somebody in there. (laughs) I know this is counterintuitive, but the fact is there's nobody there. (laughs) The lights are on, but there's really nobody home. It's just some neurons, you know. We haven't quite figured out which ones exactly. In a thousand years in science, I'm sure we'll be able to. So these are the two things that really struck me. What burden? Consciousness feeling itself tells religious stories. And science is telling consciousness, don't feel yourself. You're not what you think you are. That intuitive sense that pervades human society is totally wrong. It's a misfiring. I mean, everybody's a misfiring. Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I know it sounds odd, but in a thousand years we're going to prove it. A thousand years. Modern science has been with us for about 200 years, and it's expanding exponentially in its capacity to describe nature, right? I mean, instruments, the thing they come up with. I mean, what? if you take 200 years of science and look at it, you can take 20 years of science now, and you might cover more ground than was covered in the first 200 years. So now you take a 1,000 of those years. I thought, what is he really saying? This is a big luminary in the field of consciousness. He's saying, we don't know a damn thing about consciousness. We don't know anything about it. 1,000 years? And he's, he's con- believe me, have faith. <laughs> we, we will explain consciousness just to be matter. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing transcendental. I know it feels like that. And I know it seems that life has purpose, but has no purpose. There is no meaning. There's no big story, the super story. Of. So this is what the Bhagavatam deals with, the same subject matter. That's a pretty interesting subject. It's, a, it's very current and leading thinkers of the world trying to explain what is consciousness. This is what the book is about, also. Consciousness. It's not just about consciousness. It's about the consciousness of consciousness. It's a really interesting book because the Vedanta, in general, the Upanishads, speak about consciousness. Of course, in a different way than modern science speaks about it. But if there are any heretics from modern science that go anywhere of consequence, they go east, the Tao of what does he say? Physics and so forth, and these guys. And so they go east. Consciousness has been talked about there in the Eastern Revelation. Eastern Revelation is not just a history of a so-called event that God sent his son to the world, it happened, that kind of thing. Eastern Revelation is about the nature of consciousness, what we are. So it has an influence, even in our modern culture amongst educated people and so forth. Interesting topic. And within the Upanishads, 
they give the basic idea of consciousness as different from matter and so forth. They don't leave you hanging there with the theory. There's a means to experience it also. The idea is you are independent of matter. And so let's make an experiment. Let's take material things away from you and see if you diminish or you grow. And that's what yoga is about. And sometimes as spiritual practitioners, we tell people our lifestyle and say, how can you live like that? You don't have television? How can you live? (laughs) You don't eat this or that? How can you live? You don't have children at the monastery and all that? How can you live? So yoga is about withdrawing from our apparent dependence upon matter. And what we find is the yogi thrives, doesn't diminish, needs less and lives more, bigger. He lives or she lives a bigger life. It has a capacity to share and talk about things in such a way that will help us to grow, to become givers rather than takers and so forth. It doesn't just leave us hanging with the theory. So it's, and here, the Bhagavatam excels in this arena. It's, as I said, it's the distilled essence of all this revelation. And its subject is the consciousness of consciousness. It's a very interesting idea. Krishna is personified consciousness. And what makes him tick? This is the Radha. Love, the consciousness of consciousness. And oh, it's such a... I mean, love makes the world go round, right? Hmm? Bhagavatam affirms that and offers us the perfect object of love to repose our loving tendency within. We have a capacity for loving. Where will we repose it? A capacity for giving. Where will we give it? So such a nice book, such an important book about consciousness, about what we are, the experiencer, not just the experienced. It's about us. And it tells us here in the start, no, oh, you can live forever. Sutta was blessed with a long life. Malaram blessed him with a long life. And what would be the cause of his long life or his eternality? He would speak the Bhagavatam. And what else? You are blessed with a long life, many years. So, Vinishchitam, please. In all that you have studied, in all that you have learned, please tell us what you have ascertained to be the best thing for humans to engage themselves in. And please do it in an easily understandable way. They want the shreyas, and they want easily understandable. It's a very nice point here because it means who has realization can take these topics, which are rather abstract, and explain them in a way that they will be easily understood. That is evidence of understanding the topic, the capacity to explain it readily in common languages. So they had this confidence about sutta. You can explain it in readily, underst- easily understandable terms. It's a vast uh, and uh, elevated topic, a secret, and to, it's a difficult task. It's like Trying to explain music to deaf people. How will you do that? It's quite an art. Music to deaf people. We are going in the opposite direction. 
practically, of our own self-interest. Our sreyas, as it's mentioned here, ultimate good. So they ask these things. You are blessed with a long life. Please tell us in easily understandable terms what you have ascertained to be the best thing for human society to engage itself in. This is then giving rise to, so to speak, the Bhagavatam. So I'll speak more about these things tomorrow night. Any question? Yes. Music to deaf people. For what reason are we not deaf? And how can we help those who are deaf? I mean, to explain this music. Well, the reason that we are not deaf, to use that analogy, we are able to listen to this, is because of we had a good fortune of having good association. That um, even if you can't hear the music, you may see someone else animated by it and think, something going on there. <laughs> I can't understand what he's talking about, but I think there's something going on there. And so we met such a person, and so we're, our ears are trying to hear the music so to speak. So why others can't? Because they've not had that good association, so therefore this thing should be shared. That's the idea. It has great um, power to bring people out of the stupor of material existence, the slumber of material existence, and wake them up to their real life. What's the time? Okay, we're going to stop there.